Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. We taught in chapter 37, and then we taught, we didn't read chapter 38 because it's the record of a terrible fall of Judah in a situation where he fell into temptation, whereas Joseph didn't fall into temptation in uh, chapter 39, but chapter 38, you might contrast what happened to Judah with what happened to Joseph. It might be a good point to think about. Contrast, chapter 38 and chapter 39. But anyway, we read in chapter 39 and verse 1, and we our statement there was number 26, how that Joseph becomes a servant. Is that the one we left off with? I believe it is. But in chapter 39, we find in verse 1 and 2, we'll read, well, let's read verse 2 and 3. Genesis 39, verse 2 and 3. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So, Joseph was not only a servant, but he was number 27 in your list, if you want it. Joseph is a prosperous servant. Joseph is a prosperous servant. It's one thing to be a servant... And another thing, to prosper in that relationship. In the Bible, this, you might want to read Psalm chapter 1, the first Psalm, in relation to this. At least verses 1 through 3. Listen carefully. <clears throat> Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law... He doth meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in this season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, listen, shall what? Prosper. So the, the man after God's own heart, or the godly man, is spoken of in that fashion in the first psalm. And then it goes on to say, the ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind driveth away. It says, therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, but nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but he says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. We've said before that in that first psalm, you have an introduction or a preface to the whole of all 150 psalms. The righteous and the unrighteous, or the godly and the ungodly, all the way through. And in the first psalm, you have three verses contributed to the to the uh, righteous, and then the other, basically, to the unrighteous or the ungodly, except it does say that the, uh, in the last verse it distinguishes the difference between them. So the, the point we wanted to make here is number 27, if you don't have all of them up to date, is that Joseph is a prosperous servant. And when you read verse 2 and 3, hold your place in chapter 39 of Genesis. Chapter 39 of Genesis. And we'll give you these other references and thoughts as we go along. But let me read that again. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So just because you're a servant doesn't mean you cannot be prosperous. And it says, And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hands. Two things about his prosperity. The Lord was with him. And the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. 
You see, if God is on your side and you're on the right side, you're on God's side, and God is with you, then He'll make you to prosper. We're not talking about being a millionaire. We're not talking about having all the money there is in the world. But you can prosper tremendously without all that because you can prosper in health. You can prosper in God supplying all of your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus and God taking care of you. And there's one verse of Scripture that says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food convenient for me, whatever I have need of. Poverty nor riches. He says, if I'm poor, I might steal and bring bad uh, reproach upon the name of God. And if he's rich, he might do something else that was wrong. So, we know that uh, God knows what we need. The Bible says, your heavenly Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. And Paul said in one place, I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Whatever condition and circumstance of life. He said to the Philippians that they had given to his necessity once and again. And uh, if you want that one about what, how that uh, God shall supply all your needs, that's Philippians 4, I believe it's verse 19. But anyway, we're talking here about Joseph is a prosperous servant. Now the next thing, number 28, is Joseph's master was well pleased with him. Look at verse 4. You have Genesis 39, verse 4. We just come on down, and each verse that we state or point out, we'll have a statement with it. And so here, the statement is this, that Joseph's master was well pleased with him. We didn't point out how, before we leave that last thought, we didn't point out how that was the type of Jesus, that he was prosperous. Let's go back to that for just a moment. Because we know that God blessed uh, the Lord and He did everything that pleased God and, and everything He did prospered in the sight of God. That everything was accomplished that He needed to accomplish in this world. But let's go on to this one we gave you. Joseph's master was well pleased with him. And that's verse 4. Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. So his master put everything into his hand. Had he not been pleased, he would not have done this. 39.4. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, I'll give you a reference. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of Christ. Well, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We know that he is of the stem of Jesse. We know that uh, David came from Jesse. And this rod, a branch shall grow out of his roots. This has to uh, refer to Christ that was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Romans 1 verse 3. And of course we know that he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. It says, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now look, here's how the pleasing point comes in. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, in verse 3 says, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after uh, the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth, and so on and so forth. 
So Jesus was well-pleasing unto the Father in all things. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 29, if you'd like it. John 8, verse 29. Look at this. And he that sent me, Jesus says, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. We're talking about the servant being pleasing to the Father. And Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could say we do most of the time. Sometimes we say we do some of the time those things that please him. But we cannot say like Jesus, I do always those things that please him. For we do some things that do not please him. But so we see that Joseph then is a picture of Christ in that he pleased his master. Jesus pleased the Heavenly Father in all things and in all ways. Now let me give you number 29. Joseph the servant was made a blessing to others. Look at 39 verse 5. You keep your place there in chapter 39. Oh, 28 was Joseph's master was well pleased with him. That's just what I just talked about. Okay, 28. Is, is there anyone else missed any? And I'll be glad to repeat them if you need them. We're just teaching here. It's not like you're interrupting a sermon or anything. Uh, if you need one of those that I've given you, well, just let me know and we'll give it to you. So if you have them all, we're, that 29th one, I mean the 28th one was Joseph's master was well pleased with him. And then 29, we read verse 5, and we said Joseph the servant was made a blessing to others. 29 verse 5 is what we read it again. Well, we didn't read it, did we? Verse 5, And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, now look, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. So Joseph, being a servant, was made a blessing to others, even though he was a servant. Isn't it an amazing thing that whatever state or condition of life that you're in, or circumstance of life, you might put it, that you can still be a blessing to other people? Someone said, well, how can I be a blessing? Do what you can do where you are and under any given circumstances. He was a blessing to others. Notice what it says there. It says, From that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, now look, for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. Not only the house, but in the field. I think we've taught you before why the Lord blesses you. You know why God blesses you? Remember that lesson? You turn to Genesis chapter 12, I believe it is. Genesis chapter 12. And you'll see why the Lord blesses you. Why He blessed Abraham. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2. This is why God blesses you. You may wonder sometimes, well, why does God bless me so much? Why do I have many blessings? Here's the reason. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Now look. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. Now why? And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Did he want it to stop with Abram? Not at all. He says, When I bless you, you're going to be a blessing. You know, there have been people who say, 
I just wish God would give me enough money that I could help other people and give something to someone else. Won't you just try? Let me just give you a little test. You just try helping someone with the, whatever means you have, whether it's a very meager or a little more or a great bit. You start helping someone else with it and see how it turns out. And see if God won't bless you more richly than you ever imagined. And he will. I'll guarantee it. Because God's word says it, first of all. And secondly, I can prove it by experience. Whatever God gives you, if you'll share it with others, I'll guarantee you it'll return. The Bible says that he that giveth to the poor, listen, lendeth to the Lord. And says, whatever he lends, God will surely repay. God is going to pay you back with interest the same way we're giving your tithes. And offerings. The Bible says in the book of Malachi, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. By the way, the local church is a storehouse nowadays. Some people have made it something else, but it's still the local church. You can make it whatever you want to, but it's the local church. It's the storehouse. Because the local church has a responsibility of sending missionaries around the world and the responsibility of getting the gospel out. And that's where the provision should be made. And other... Uh, Areas of the Lord's ministry are supported in a in another way. But he says, Bring ye all the tithes in the storehouse, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. That's a lot of blessings, isn't it? That you don't have room enough to receive? You just put God to the test and see if that won't prove to be true. And I know most of us have in this church. We have a church of, of liberal and giving people. In fact, some of our missionaries have told us when they come in, we take up an offering with, that they've got more out of this small church than they've got out of larger churches. Brother Wendell can vouch for that because he usually handles that part of it. It's amazing, isn't it? And God has blessed us for it so that our needs are supplied in the local church because we've followed God's plan. And anytime you follow God's plan, he's going to bless you. If you try to follow your own plan, it won't work. But if you follow God's plan, it will work and it will prove to be a blessing. So that's why he was a blessing. Look at Genesis 39 again. We said that Joseph the servant was made a blessing to others. We read verse 5. It says, And it came to pass from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. Now then, has he blessed us for Christ's sake? The world has been greatly blessed for Christ's sake. Look at the blessings that have come upon the world because of Jesus. Think of this. The Bible says, I believe it's, let me see if I got it. Romans Romans 8.32, put it down. It says, for he that spared not his own son, listen carefully, Romans 8.32, but delivered him up for us all. It says, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. With Christ, he will freely give us all things. The Bible says, as far as the child of God is concerned, that he's saved us by grace and made us to raise us up to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the spiritual blessings as well as the material blessings have been upon us because of Christ. And thus, Joseph is typical or symbolical, a picture of Christ. We said that in the Old Testament, you have figures and symbols and pictures of the New Testament, of what we find in the New Testament. We gave you, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, let me see if I can find it, the 10th chapter, 
And remember what we said, that those things were happened to us for in samples. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Just to remind us again where we started with this, as far as this types and symbols and examples are concerned. Romans 10, verse 6. And it, the verses before that refer back to Moses and the deliverance from Egypt and God seeing them through the wilderness and feeding them with manna from on high and uh, the water from the rock. But now look at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. It says, Now these things were our examples, look, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they all also lusted. And it tells of what they did in the wrong way on down to verse 10. But verse 11 says, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. They're written for our admonition. So all these figures and types and symbols and pictures were written for what? Our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's where we get a basis for studying those things in the Old Testament. And uh, someone says, well, I haven't studied the Old Testament much. I just read and study the New Testament. Do you really study the New Testament? Remember the scripture we gave you, Romans 15, verse 4? It says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, listen, were written for our learning, that was the Old Testament, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of patience and comfort that's given to us from the Old Testament that if it's neglected, we would not have. So we're duty-bound. If we're New Testament students, we're duty-bound to be Old Testament students. Have you ever seen people that just say, we're just a New Testament church and we don't study the Old, Old Testament? Well, you're missing a great deal because the riches are found there. And go back and find them and you'll find how they refer to, to the New Testament blessings. If you read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, a chapter of faith, we call it the great faith chapter. And it starts out with Abel and after creation, it starts out with Abel and Noah and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and uses all of those to show us spiritual truths and how that they followed God. Obedience and faith and trust and temptations and, and doctrinal things such as Abel offering a more excellent sacrifice to God than Cain by which he received a witness that he was righteous. And it says God testifying of his gifts and by he being dead yet speak he declares that God re receives a person on the basis of the shed blood of that offering that was offered as Abel did so there's a lot of wonderful things that we study Hebrews 11 tells us that so you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3 and 4 and you, or chapter 4 I believe it is where you find it and you'll find that this is the, what God is using to show us Abel's example of faith in the shed blood of his sacrifice. So if you, do, if you don't study the Old Testament, you're not going to get these things. And if you don't think it's worth your thought and time, just imagine what it would be if you didn't know some of these things. So make, it, make an effort to say, well, I'm going to find out what it teaches about this or that or the other. And do make it a point of interest. And then let's uh, give you something else. Uh, in chapter 39 of, uh, of uh, Genesis, let's read verse 6. We talked about verse 5. It says, 
And he, that is the, the Egyptian, the uh, one that uh, was being blessed, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught that he had, save that the bread which he did eat, and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. I want you to notice that number 30 is that Joseph was a goodly person. That's what it says, Genesis 39, verse 6. And that's number 30, number 30 of our types. Number 30, Joseph was a goodly person. Genesis 39, verse 6. We just read it. Now, how about Jesus? How about Jesus? When he died on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 54. What was it said of him? Matthew 27 and verse 54. Look at this. Let's see if I have the right reference. It doesn't seem to be. Maybe I have the wrong reference. Maybe I have the right reference. I do. Okay. Genesis 27, verse 54, rather. It says, when the centurion, this is when Jesus died on the cross. And it says, now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, what? Truly. This was the Son of God, a goodly person, so that even those that were attending the crucifixion and the the rough and tumble uh, macho centurions, soldiers, said, truly, this was the Son of God. Then I have another reference. If you'll look in the book of Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, look at this verse. It says in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Now look, a goodly person who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. As God was with Joseph back there in the master's house in Egypt, God was with Jesus and caused him to, and helped him as he went about doing good. And healing all that were oppressed of the devil, it says, for God was with him. We're talking about a goodly person. We could go in the life of Christ and deal with all the miracles and all the love and sympathy and caring that Jesus had. And pity upon those that were in various needs. And sympathy and love exhibited and show you that he was a goodly person. But we just gave you some statements, really. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. And that was the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 38. So just as Joseph was a goodly person, so we see he is a type of Christ who is a goodly person. Let me give you number 31. And in order to give you number 31, let me give you the statement, and then we'll read several verses of Scripture. Number 31 was, Joseph was sorely tempted, yet sin not. Number 31, Joseph was sorely tempted, yet sin not. And that'll be verses 7 through 12. Genesis 39, verse 7 through 12. Let's begin to read it. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, 
and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. He ran away from her. She tempted him. She tested him. And yet he did not fall into the temptation. He was sorely tempted, yet he sinned not. I'm sure that you can see in this a picture of Christ. By the way, this is the verse I want you to compare and the thought I want you to compare with the 38th chapter. Remember I mentioned that a little bit ago with Judah and how he fell and how he thought that his daughter-in-law by the wayside was... We didn't study chapter 38 for that specific reason because uh, it was... It didn't pertain to the types or Joseph. Joseph is not the center of attraction in that uh, 38th chapter. But Judah and his sin, his fall, he took his daughter-in-law because he took her to be a harlot along the way. And uh, she conceived by him. And we have a whole story of things we could tell about that. We won't do that at this time. But I just want you to keep in mind that you could contrast the actions of Judah there with the actions of Joseph here in the 39th chapter and see that Joseph was sorely tempted and yet he did not sin. And by the way, Paul said, look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul, in, in uh, exhorting Tim, Timothy, he tells him uh, to flee fornication. Listen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it is, in verse 22. He says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he's telling uh, Timothy, young Timothy, to flee youthful lust. And that's what Joseph was doing back there. He left his coat in her hand and he fled out of her presence. And then we're going to find that in spite of that, he was going to be falsely accused. But how is this Joseph being sorely tempted? Hold your place in Genesis 39. Joseph being sorely tempted, yet sinned not. How is this a picture of Christ? If you turn to Matthew chapter 4, you'll find the answer. He was sorely tempted even by Satan. And you turn to Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11. And you'll find the great temptation. And the temptation was in the realm of the physical as well as the spiritual. It was in the realm of temptation to, of, to lust after food here. Notice in Matthew 4, in verse 1, it says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. You and I would be hungry in during the 40 days and 40 nights, wouldn't we? But the Bible says he was afterward in hunger. And this was the greatest hour of temptation for food and for nourishment for Jesus. And it says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be, look at this, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Well, how did Jesus stand up when he was sorely tempted? To lust even here for food. It says, If thou be the Son of God. Well, he was the Son of God. Command that these stones be made bread. Remember, he fed the children of Israel with manna for 40 years in the wilderness. And he certainly could have commanded, if he so desired, these stones to be turned into bread. God would even give him bread from heaven. Or however, whatever miraculous way he so desired, he could have had food. But he yielded himself to being tempted by Satan, though he did not yield to the temptation of Satan. Now look what it says. 
But he answered and said, this is what Jesus said. It is written. You know, your strength in time of temptation is the word of God. It said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Bread alone will not keep a man, but every word of God will sustain us. And he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8 and verse 3, I believe it is. By the way, all three of these temptations, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now let's go on down. Was he tempted more? Certainly he was. Then the devil taketh him up to the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, now look, the devil can quote scripture too. And he takes it out of its context and misuses it. Look at this. You have Matthew 4, verse 6. And the devil says, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. By the way, I'll show you something in a minute, and I've shown it to you before, but repetition is the art of learning, so I'll show you again. Notice what it says here. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But what scripture did Satan use? Turn to Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Psalm 91. Let's see what the devil did and how he mutilated. You know the devil has a way of mutilating or misrepresenting the the, the word of God and twisting it. Remember he said to Eve, Hath God said... And we want you to turn to Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Notice what it says here. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now listen, the devil stopped right there, didn't he? When he's quoted that psalm. You know why he stopped right there? The next two verses would be his undoing, or the next verse at least. You see, the devil's not going to quote a scripture that will bring an accusation against himself. He's going to leave that out. And what does it say in the next verse? It says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. Look, hold your place there and look at Revelation chapter 12. I've given you this lesson before. I hope you got it there first time, but if you didn't, be sure and get it this time. Revelation chapter 12. I want to read verse 3. Verse three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. Now drop down to verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. Now look, what else is he called? That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, put that down as a reference. And then turn to the book of First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And verse 8 says this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, listen, the devil, as a roaring lion, mark that, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. A roaring lion. Now you turn back to that psalm we gave you. Psalm 91 verse 13. That Satan did not quote, quote. He did not quote this part of the scripture. To Jesus. In the wilderness temptation. Why? It says. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. Or the serpent. And the lion. 
and the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Notice, you have all three of the terms to describe Satan that we find in the book of Revelation. A lion, and in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, a lion as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as an adder or asp or serpent, Revelation 12, 9, and as a dragon, Revelation 12, verse 9. So why the devil stopped, we can readily see because he didn't want to condemn himself by quoting the scripture to Jesus. You see, he's pretty sly, isn't he? He knows just exactly what to do. I hope you get that lesson. So, Satan just quotes part of a verse, part of this passage when he tempts Jesus. He does speak here in this passage in Psalm 91 of angelic protection. And it includes protection from stumbling or falling. But what the devil said, Matthew 4 again, hold your place there in Matthew 4 now. Come back to Matthew 4. And saith unto him, verse 6, This is Satan, the tempter, saying to Jesus, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. He says, I'm going to quote a scripture to, to Jesus now. It is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and they in, uh, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And he stops right there. He stops right there. And then what's Jesus say? Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You see what Satan does? He uses scripture to his own advantage. Don't ever think, just because you hear someone quote a scripture, that they know what it means. Or don't ever think that uh, they cannot be deceiving, even by quoting the scripture. Because you can take scripture out of its context and be very misleading to folks. And you can only use a certain part of it and be very misleading to folks to folks. Keep scriptures in their context. You know, there's a scripture in the New Testament that says, he that doubteth is damned. Uh-oh. Someone says, well, I've doubted. But it's that's not all it says. It says, he that doubteth is damned if he eat, or condemned if he eats. And he's talking about bread that's offered in sacrifice to idols. If he eats bread, he's condemned himself by eating that bread. And I heard a preacher one time, an evangelist over there in Fort Worth, and he used that to tell tell his people out there that if they ever doubted their salvation, they were lost. Well, you see what harm taking Scripture out of its context and out of its meaning does to people? You might have some poor soul out there that says, well, I'm not sure about it. I've trusted Jesus, but I don't have the confidence that other folks have. And I wonder if I'm saved at all. Or I did something very very wrong, and I wonder, I wouldn't do that if I was really saved. And all kinds of things happen in people's lives. And so taking the Scripture out of its context or misapplying it can be very dangerous to souls. Don't ever forget that. That's why you need to test out the Scripture that a preacher quotes and see if he keeps it in the right meaning of what that context says. And if you don't test it out, you may be mixed up as all get out. Because they they can take any Scripture let me just give you an example. And you probably heard it time and again. And I don't mean to be frivolous with the Word of God, but to just show you how foolish things can be. Someone has said, Judas went out and hanged himself. And then another portion in Jesus said something. Jesus said, go and do that likewise. But not in the same context, was it? It had nothing to do. One thing had nothing to do with the other. So taking the scripture here and then applying something over here to it is is misusing the scripture. And that's what the devil was doing here. 
to Jesus. He was taking it completely out of context, and therefore he was trying to to use it or misuse it. You know, there's some people that do not use the Scripture. There's some people that that misuse the Scripture. That's what he did at the very beginning. He went back there. Eve said, you know, we can't eat of every tree of the garden. And the devil comes along and says, Hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then he adds to the word of God. You go back there and read the context. He not only misuses it, but he casts doubt upon God's word, and he falls for it, doesn't he? And she added, she, she added to it too, didn't she? Let's go back and read it. Turn back to Genesis, if you will. Chapter 3. In verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it. Now look what Eve did. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. He didn't say anything about touching. God said to not eat of it. She said, Neither shall ye touch it. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. See, contradicts God's word. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was what? First, good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Three things. And you know, John deals with those, those things in the book of First John. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he says, The world passeth away, but he that doeth the will of God. He says, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. And But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So those three things in the book of First John pointed out. I believe it's chapter 4 of First John, where Jesus said, where John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So you can find it there. All right? So... We've given you, let's see where we are now. The last thing we gave you was number 31, that Joseph was sorely tempted, yet sinned not. Jesus was sorely tempted, and yet sinned not. We'll give you 32 in our next lesson. Number 32.